Let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we just thank you for, Lord, your goodness toward us. And we pray that, God, you would open our hearts uh, tonight, Lord, to just hear your word. And, Father, that we might be challenged by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This day is significant. We know that it is Good Friday. And as significant as this evening is because of what happened on Good Friday, let me suggest to you that Resurrection Sunday, which is two days from now, is even more significant. And why is that? It's simply because if Jesus just died on the cross and he didn't resurrect, as the scriptures have foretold for even a thousand or more years, a couple thousand years actually, if he didn't literally resurrect from the dead, then what we are doing tonight here is a waste of time. Because there's a lot of people throughout history who have died and were, and, and were, were crucified and died. But there's only one who not only died on the cross, but not only died on the cross, but also died for the sins of the world, the sin of the world, and not only that, but rose again the third day as the scriptures have foretold. No one else has done that. And, I, and, and so it's important for us, and certainly not to diminish what happened on this day, the sin of the world was placed upon Jesus Christ. My sin, that I, the punishment that I deserve, that you deserve, was placed upon him. Substitutionary atonement is really what it is. Instead of, my, instead of me paying the price, Jesus, the sin bearer, took the price on himself and paid that for all of us. And not only all of us in this room, but for all of mankind. And I like what Paul said, the Apostle Paul, he spoke hypothetically and he said this. He said, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most to be pitied. (laughs) Isn't that true? It's true. But because he did resurrect from the grave, it is proof not only that he is the Son of God, but that the, the scriptures are inerrant and that they are inspired by God. And that God accepted that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In fact, it was the fact that he did accept that sacrifice was how he, was, he rose from the grave. And it was proof that he did accept that sacrifice. How wonderful that is. Amen? And we are all here, hopefully all of us, as I look around the room, I don't see too many uh, new faces, there are a few, but hopefully you, you know this in the, be- in, in the innermost part of your being, it's the very foundation of our faith. The very foundation of the Christian faith is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this message tonight is not only for the unbeliever, but it's also for the believer for the unbeliever, because they, that they might hear the good news. And you're going to hear the good news tonight. And you're going to hear even better news on Sunday morning. That you might hear the good news that Jesus paid the price for the punishment. He paid the punishment for your sin and for my sin. And not only that, the offer of salvation is given to us and the forgiveness of sin. 
What greater thing could happen to us? What greater gift could be given? And for the believer, it's for us too, because it helps us, it reminds us of what the Bible says. It reminds us of the truth that we already know. If you're like me, even though I know the truth, I need to be constantly reminded. In fact, the Bible makes no qualms about um, repeating itself often. And why is that? Because we need to be reminded. And it shows because we don't always learn the first time. We don't always hear the second time. We don't always hear the third time. But maybe the seventh or eighth or the fiftieth time, all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off. Has it happened to you when you've read a scripture over hundreds of times, maybe in your life, and all of a sudden, it just the lights go on, and all of a sudden, it just that passage is illuminated to you, and that's the way it is. So it's for us too, for us believers to be reminded, but it's also as a result, just as Jesus was crucified, Christians, I want to encourage you to consider yourself crucified in Christ and to take those things that the Bible tells us, those, those attitudes, those things in our life, and, and put them to death, to crucify them. We will look at that a little bit later. But we call this day Good Friday, and it's kind of an ironic term because it wasn't good for Jesus so much. Although there was some good in it for him, and I'll explain why. But first, us. It's good for us because we won't have to spend an eternity separated from him, right? If we put our faith in him, we will spend everlasting life with him for eternity. It's not just something that happens, some temporary thing like a, a fine or, or, a, or a, a car ticket or a, 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 you know, some kind of ticket that you might get, a temporary penalty. We're talking about eternal. Eternal judgment. But he didn't just pay the price for our temporary. He paid the price for the eternal. And Jesus is the gift of God. The favorite verse that we all know by heart, for God so loved the world that he gave, it's a gift. God the Father gave his son that we might not perish but have everlasting life. And that is a wonderful gift and I pray that all of you have received that gift tonight. And if you haven't, tonight is the night. Don't wait another day. Whether you're here physically or whether you're online, don't Walk away from this building tonight without making sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you can know, by the way. It's not something you have to sign up for and hope that you get a, a, a ticket in the mail or, a, or a, a sign up, you know, like our COVID shots. You know, you don't have to select an appointment. You can do that right now. You can do that today. And I encourage you to do that if you haven't. At the very least, giving your life again to the Lord. So it's not only good for us, but it's good for another reason, too. Because even though Jesus suffered in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend, he did it for the joy that was set before him. What does it tell us in Hebrews? Who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, and he despised the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice, who for the joy set before him, as he hung on that cross, he was thinking of the myriads of people that would be reconciled to a holy God, that would be reconciled to himself and to his Father. That's what it is all about. 
And Jesus, he submitted to this death on the cross that he might present, as it says in Ephesians 5, that he might present us, the church, her, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's who you are, Christian, if you're in Christ. You are one of his, and he's going to present you spotless and holy before the Father. Think of that service. Think of when that happens. It's going to be amazing. But we have to believe that he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he would do. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, it says that we are his workmanship. Your life has meaning. We are his poema, his masterpiece. You are not some four-footed creature. Although God cares for everything, he cares more for you. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Didn't Jesus say that? You're worth more than sparrows or any other thing that he's created. You're worth more than all those things. Worth more. We were lost. I was lost once. Do you remember when you were lost and you were found? Are you lost tonight? Maybe you've never received Christ. Do you want to be found? Do you want to be found? Some people don't want to be found. They like to hide in the darkness. But God wants to draw you out. He wants to love on you. And he wants to speak words of love to you. And it didn't happen by mistake. Jesus' crucifixion. It was very well thought out, well planned, even before the foundation of the earth. In Revelation 13, it says that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That means before he said, and God said, let there be, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that even was spoken, there was already a plan. Before the foundation of the earth, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit knew that there would come a time when man would rebel and that he would need to be reconciled. And the only way of reconciliation is a perfect and holy death. The Bible says in Romans 5 that he demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is there anybody else who would die for you? I don't know, is there any? Is there any other world religion that has a guru or some special prophet that can um, reconcile you to God? I don't know of any that have died for the sin of man, who are even claimed to have died for the sin of man. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And why did Jesus have to die? Why? Why did he have to die? There was no other way to redeem man. There was no other way to redeem man from his fallen state and to restore him to a right relationship with God, that he might have everlasting life rather than everlasting damnation, which is the other choice. There's only two choices. We either accept God and receive Jesus and we spend everlasting life with him or we spend an everlasting damnation separated from him for eternity. There's only two options. There's not a a door number three. People would love to have a door number three, but there is no door number three. And because God's standard is perfection, and none of us are perfect, he required a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was the only one who fit that bill, fit that requirement, because he was perfect himself, without blemish, without spot, the perfect lamb. There's a song that I love. It's called Above All. 
And one of the lyrics in the, or the lyrics in the song says, Crucify, laid behind the stone, you live to die. Notice, you live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall, and you thought of me above all. I like that. I like that. But can you imagine living to die? He was born with a purpose, and Jesus knew that purpose. It wasn't something that was foreign to him. But Jesus and God's standard is perfection. He was the only one. No other guru, prophet has made that claim. In all the world religions, folks, and you, maybe you've tried different things, it's all about what you can do for them, what you can do for the religion, and, and what you can do for God to somehow make yourself worthy But Christianity is the only one who says, I've done everything for you. Jesus has done everything for you. All you have to do is believe. And therein lies the stumbling block for most people. They want to feel like they have some part in it, some stake in their own salvation. Like, I can do something to earn my way. And the Bible says there's no one. There's none good. There's no one that um, can do that. For by grace you have been saved. Unmerited favor, you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Why? Because it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because if it was of works, we would all be boasting, and we'd be all comparing ourselves with one another. But God says, for by grace are you saved. Unmerited favor, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And God is holy. He is separate from sinners. He's separate from his creation. He loves sinners. He loves you and I. And he loves his creation, but he's separate from it. And in Leviticus 11, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And yet the verdict comes to us in Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Ten Commandments that we all know. Some people think that if they can do those Ten Commandments that they'll be all set. But that's not the way it works. The Ten Commandments, as it says in Galatians, they were our tutor to bring us to Christ. They they revealed to us that we could not do those things. We didn't have it in us to do the right thing. We might be able to be on our best behavior for a little while, but then invariably we fell. We would fall, just like Adam and Eve. It was only a matter of time as the devil began to whisper the lies and deceptions. It was only a matter of time. If it didn't happen that day with Eve, it would have happened the next day. Or it might have happened to Adam. He would wear on them like water on sandstone before they finally caved into the temptation. But Jesus had to die. He had to die. He was the only one. John the Baptist, in, in, in the first chapter of John's gospel, what did he say? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb who was slain. He takes away the sin of the world. And the blood of Christ is precious. Unlike any blood of any man, because the very blood of God bled on that cross. There was not an ounce of his blood, not an ounce of Joseph's blood, or Mary's in Jesus. Holy blood. I love what Peter says. He says, 
He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Precious, a precious lamb, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 19. We're going to look at John's Gospel, chapter 19, and then Sunday morning we're going to look at chapter 20. And certainly this chapter speaks of the crucifixion. We're going to look at some things concerning it this night, and also an exhortation for us believers. And hopefully by now, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, hopefully the things you've heard already has kind of pricked your heart. It did me. I remember the day when I heard the truth. And I was wounded because I thought I was a decent person, but I was comparing myself with everybody else. But when I compare myself to him, his standard, I fall way short, way short. Even on my best days, I'm a complete failure in God's sight. But yet he loves me. Have you found that he loves you? It's an irresistible kind of love, isn't it? It's a love that won't hide from you, and it's certainly going to persist The Lord, I love him because he chased after me for many years before I finally gave my heart to him. Did he chase you? He chased me. And I look back on my life and I can see how he ran after me. Like a prodigal, like a father going to the prodigal son. The son is running away and at some point he comes back. And I wasn't even coming back. I was still running the opposite way and he intervened in my life. Do you have that same experience? What kind kind of love is that? If somebody rejects me, I just let them go. <laughs> you reject me, you don't want to be around me, that's fine. Well, you know, see ya. <laughs> but is that the love of God? God says, no, you know what? I'm not going to let you go, Rob, because I know the end. I know what waits you if you reject me and you finally take your last breath. And I am so glad he went after me. And I'm so glad he went after you too, otherwise you wouldn't be here tonight. He went after you. He loves you. And that's why tonight is so significant. We remember what he did. In the first, cha- first verse, excuse me, of John chapter 19, it says, So then Pilate, and this is after, remember, last Sunday we, we looked at Palm Sunday, which was John chapter 12. And then four or five days later is where we're at now, when he's going to stand trial with Pilate. And then chapters 13 through 18, 13 through 17 was the events surrounding the, the Last Supper and the Last Passover, the Last Supper with the disciples. And chapter 18 is this arraignment and, and going before Pilate, being falsely arrested. And now, finally, in chapter 19, we're going to see him finally being put to death for a crime he didn't commit, for crimes he didn't commit. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And I'm not going to get real graphic tonight. We've, we've, we've done that in years past, and I'm only going to mention a few things here. So don't worry, it's not going to get real graphic. Although the, the crucifixion was very, very graphic. And I would, I would suggest to you that even the, the movies that you've seen are nothing in comparison with how it really happened. 
Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. They used a flagellum, this device of death, a device of torture. And it had a handle and it had uh, um, nine different strips of, of leather with with, with metal balls and sharp pieces of bone that were in them. And they would take that and they would put them on this pole and they would tie them to the pole with their backs exposed. And that's where Pilate would scourge him. And they would question them, what have you done wrong? Or, or they would try to get them to confess. And, and, and they would give several lashes, up to 39. And Jesus probably took all 39 because he had nothing to confess. And they would use that as a way of trying to break someone and get a confession of what they did or what they were, you know, what they were being accused of for being there. And many men didn't survive even that. But notice in verse 2, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe which signifies royalty. The king of the Jews and Pilate knew that he would be kind of poking the finger at the religious leaders. He knew he had given them up. He knew that they had given Jesus up out of envy. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. Remember in Genesis, when it talked after the fall, what did God say to Adam? In Genesis 3.18, But thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. One of the consequences of the sin in the garden was for the man, he would have to, he would be contesting with thorns and thistles as he grew his crops. He would be doing this and eating herbs of the field in the sweat of his brow. And out of that curse, they took the, the crown of thorns and they placed it upon his head, the one who was accursed, who literally became sin for us who bore the sin, bore the judgment. And then in verse 3, they said to him, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Not only did they strike him with their hands, but Matthew's gospel tells us that they took the reed that they had put in his hand, and they took that reed and they hit him over the head with it while he had that crown of thorns on his head, further deepening the wounds as for each blow that they did. In Luke's gospel, it tells us that before he was sent to Pilate, that they even blindfolded him and they struck him on the face, asking him, or saying to him, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Playing games with him. Have you ever had something, you know, when you have something over your head, you can't see the, the blow coming. When boxers are boxing, they can see the punch coming and they move with the glance so that it doesn't hit them full on, but when you've got something over your face and you can't see, there's no way for you to respond to that blow. You take the full brunt of it. And yet that's what they did to our Savior. And notice how the Lord gave Pilate many opportunities. It says, Pilate, verse 4, went out again and he said to them, the religious leaders, behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate was getting a little nervous because Jesus said nothing before him, very little. And most of the time he was just completely silent. And there was something about Jesus that got Pilate, got him nervous, got him to really think about maybe he is who he says he is. And he was content to let him go. And Pilate gave him many opportunities to not go through with it. But Pilate was, and Pilate would be accountable 
now on many fronts. Not only for beating Jesus, having him beat, but certainly crucifying. But Pilate and everyone involved in this murderous plot would be held accountable for what they did. Judas would be held accountable for betraying the Son of God. He was the guest of honor at that Last Supper, you recall, the night before. He was also the treasurer who held the bag, and he was also a thief. Jesus knew that he was stealing from them. And the chief priests and the elders of the people, when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they said, and Jesus said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And they all fell backward supernaturally. A whole regiment fell backward. I think at that point I would say, we're no longer seeking you. Have a good night. But they got back up and he said, who are you seeking? Who are you seeking now? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, take me, but leave these. And the disciples, they fled from him. And Pilate, he would be held accountable. Pilate's wife shared in a dream, and she was tormented by that. And she said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And Pilate did everything for political expediency. Does that sound familiar today in our politics? If it's politically expedient, wow, that's great. Notice in verse 5, Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. I can imagine he was intrigued by Jesus and the fact that the floggings and the interrogations, everything, and yet Jesus remained resolute and unchanged, and he even challenged Pilate. In verse 6, says, Therefore, when the, the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, You take him and crucify him, for I find in him no fault. And the Jews answered and said, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Really? Did he make himself the Son of God, or was he the Son of God? He didn't make anything. He was. In fact, as we go through the Gospel of John on Sunday morning, we're going to see that. His deity on display. He didn't make himself. He was and is the Son of God. And Jesus was indeed all who the prophets had spoken concerning who he was. Moses, David, Isaiah, Zechariah, Malachi. He fulfilled those prophecies to the letter And he will fulfill even yet unfulfilled prophecies to the letter when he returns. He's always been faithful. Have you known that about him? Has he been faithful to you? Has he been faithful in fulfilling what he said he was going to do? Exactly what he was going to do up to this moment? He has. And he's he's been good. He's been faithful in every single thing to the letter. Things that have been written thousands of years in advance. He fulfilled very literally, very personally. And there's no excuse for us tonight to deny this truth of who Jesus is. Therefore, verse 8, when Pilate heard that that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went out again into the praetorium. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Jesus, as he stood before Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and also Herod as well, he kept his mouth quiet. 
He didn't feel he had to confess or do anything. In fact, what does Isaiah say? Isaiah 53, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 this evening as you reread this passage, this chapter. It's very rich. What did it say in Isaiah 53 verse 7? It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. As he stood before Pilate, Caiaphas, Annas, all these people who had power and authority, they thought, over him. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I don't know what it is about sheep, but it's true. I've heard that when sheep before, when they're getting shorn, all of a sudden they just, they just, they get really quiet. Maybe, maybe the buzzing of the shears, maybe it puts them into a trance. I don't know. Maybe it makes them go to sleep. Uh, who knows? Maybe they're thinking, is this my last day? You know, he's got the, he's got the shears. Uh, the, you know, maybe I'm going to be lamb chops tonight. I don't know. So I'm going to be on my best behavior. We don't really know. But Jesus, like a lamb, silent before its shears, Jesus was silent before these. And then Pilate said to him, verse 10, are you not, speak, are you not speaking to me? Can you imagine? Are you not speaking to me, Jesus? Do you, <laughs> do, you know, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and I have power to release you? I don't think Pilate knew that his power was given to him by God. Isn't that ironic? The very power that Pilate had was given to him on loan from God. Isn't that what Romans 13 tells us? The powers that be are ordained by God. Even every ruler, everything that we see around us is no accident. God holds them accountable, certainly, but it's no accident. And here Pilate is. Verse 11, Jesus answered, he said, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The greater sin. Jesus now turns the tables on him. And this really flusters Pilate because no one would ever dare to do something like this. Anyone standing before Pilate realizes with one word and they are done. And Jesus was bold and he stood before him. He says, you have no power over me except it was given to you. And it wasn't just the Jews that put Jesus to death. It was the Gentiles as well. The Jews led him there. The Gentiles crucified him. We are all culpable in the crucifixion of Jesus. I wonder what would happen if Jesus were walking the earth today and he hadn't been crucified yet. Do you think he would be alive? They probably would have crucified him back in the 60s. They probably would have crucified him back in the Middle Ages. They would have crucified him for the same reasons that they crucified him back then. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, and here's the coup de grace. If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So now Pilate's got a huge problem. So no matter what Pilate thought about Jesus, his own allegiance to Caesar is now being challenged. And thus his position is now in great jeopardy because any scuffle that happens, he would be held accountable from Augustus Caesar in Rome. And there was already enough things happening, and Caesar was getting very frustrated with everything that was happening in Jerusalem. The zealots. And the devil has a, a cunning way of 
cornering somebody like Pilate, even though his heart was to let Jesus go. He was a politician and he was a man pleaser. He wasn't a God-fearing man. History tells us that not long after the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate was brought before Rome and they banished him. He was banished and ultimately he committed suicide. Probably thinking and being terrorized in his thoughts and his dreams about what he had done and about how Jesus was standing right before him. Remember he said, what is truth? (laughs) And there is truth personified right in front of him. Verse 13, it says, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. There were some, no doubt, that just days earlier were bringing him into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and laying their palm fronds and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I wonder how many of them were standing here now in that crowd and agreeing, crucify him. This is not the king that we wanted. We wanted someone to overthrow Rome and he's coming in on a donkey? Yeah, he came in on a donkey. Did you read the scriptures? Did you read Daniel chapter 9? Did you read Nehemiah? Do you know the significance of that day? We looked at that last week. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the priests, the chief priests, the Jews, what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. Really? All of a sudden, it's really politically expedient now because they want him dead. No longer are they seeking Jehovah God. Now they're saying, oh, Caesar is king, telling Pilate exactly what he wants to hear. Verse 16, then he delivered them to be crucified, and they took Jesus away, and they led him away. And notice, and he, bearing his cross, we're going to stop here for a few minutes, that he, Jesus, now bearing his cross, went to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. See, Jesus bore the physical cross for a short distance. For a short distance, he bore the cross. And then probably due to exhaustion and falling down, they grabbed a man by the name of Simon, a Cyrenian from from, uh, Africa who was there during the Passover, and they compelled him to carry it the rest of the way. In three different accounts, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it tells us that this had happened. And because the entire cross weighed over 300 pounds, only the crossbar was carried around the back, behind the neck. It's called a patibulum. It weighed somewhere between 75 and 125 pounds. And the arms were often tied to the crossbar that was carried. But the cross, or the burden that Jesus carried, was infinitely more than just that patibulum. Think of it. Jesus bore the cross. You may say, well, Simon bore the cross. Yeah, for at some point along the way. But what did Jesus bear? What cross did he really bear? Something that no one else could bear. The sin of the world. (laughs) Think of that. How could you do that? How could you even qualify a statement like that? 
except it would be signs and great wonders as a result of his crucifixion, which we read in Matthew. Earthquakes, the sun going dark, earthquakes, people rising from the dead, miracles. But Jesus bore his cross, and Christian, you and I, we too have a cross to bear as well. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice, Jesus bore his cross. We have to bear our cross. Let him take up his cross and follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Have you lost your life to Christ? Did you have a plan for your life and realize, Lord, I want your plan for my life? I had a plan for my life. I did. I had a very clear plan for my life. I thought I knew what I wanted to do. And the Lord, thank God, intervened in my life. He intervened. And I'm so glad he did. Because I would not be as happy and fulfilled. I certainly wouldn't have been saved. But he intervened in my life, put me on a path that I could not have fought. I couldn't have seen it. If it were right in front of me, I would have tripped over it and went somewhere else. But he's the one who set me. He's the one who set you on that path. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Give your heart and your life to Christ. Everything that you are, give your whole heart to him. Make sure that everything you do lines up with his will, that doesn't contradict his will. Everything that you do, the reasons that you do things, why you buy certain things, why you don't buy other things, why you do the things that you do, are they adding up? Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But even as Christians, we have a cross to bear as well. Jesus bore the thing that we couldn't bear. That's the sin of the world. And we believe in him, and thus we are saved. But we also have an accountability before God. Not for salvation, but for growth. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Don't you want to grow and not stay the same? I, I want to be different tomorrow than the way I was today. I don't want to stay the same. Does anyone here want to stay the same? It's very comfortable to stay the same, but there's no challenge involved. And you know what happens? You get stagnant. You get stagnant, and pretty soon the truth doesn't even appeal to you anymore because you've gotten stagnant. It's like water that's been setting too long. It's not giving out. It's, it's, it's receiving from the top, but it's not giving out. We looked at the picture of the, of the Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Galilee receives refreshing water from the, from the north coming down into it, and it, it delivers that fresh water through the Jordan Valley, but then it gets landlocked in the Dead Sea where nothing is alive. And that's the way we can be. And God wants our lives to be fruitful. He wants our lives to bear much fruit. He said, for what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? You know, there's a term that says, a phrase that says, everyone has their price. What is your price? Do you have a price? Do you have a price? If somebody were to say, you know, recant your belief in Jesus Christ... And we'll give you $18 million in cash right now. Just say that I don't believe in Jesus. Would you do it? There's some people who would say, you know what? I'll do it for half that. I'll do it for $1 million.
But what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? As Christians, we bear our own cross by being willing to be despised. As you are associated with Jesus, you're going to receive some antagonism. You're going to receive difficult things. You're going to receive persecution. Maybe not to a great extent. For some, it is great. For some, it is little. We bear our cross by putting to death those things that are not pleasing to God, willing to be put to death if necessary, like many of the martyrs in Christian history, willing to be put to death. So many examples, Martin Luther, many others willing to be burned at the stake instead of renouncing Christ. Can you imagine? He bore the cross. He bore his cross. In Romans chapter 6, it says, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? I'm speaking to us as Christians. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because Paul's writing to Christians. He says, Certainly not. How shall we who have died in, uh, to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, And see, that's what we as Christians, we need to do. Continually to crucify those things in our life that we know are not pleasing to God. And there may be some of here today are like, you know what, I got a lot of things I've still yet to crucify. Or maybe you're doing really well, but most of us have things that we still need to crucify. We need to put to death. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Are you a slave to sin? God wants to set you free. For he who has died from, has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Notice, once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And then notice the exhortation on verse 11 of, of Romans 6. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Have you ever noticed that a dead man isn't tempted? You can go to the grave in Penfield and you can wave all the things that normally tempt people, whatever it may be, any temptation known to man, you can wave them before men and women who are in the grave and they're going to be motionless. They're not even going to be aware that it's happening because they're dead. And see, we too also, we bear our cross. We've been crucified with Jesus. And that's why today is so important. As he died on the cross, when we were baptized, isn't that what we did? 
It's symbolic for when he went under the water or when he died, we died with him. But as he rose again, we rose to newness of life. And he made that possible through the resurrection. And we rise with him if we are in Christ. That's why Sunday morning is so special for us. More so than even the, what happens tonight. Because it was the proof that God accepted it. And it fulfilled the scriptures. Fulfilled the scriptures. No one has ever done that. No one. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Therefore put to death, crucify. Therefore crucify your members which are on the earth. And what are these things? Many of us are very familiar with these things. Fornication. Whether it's heterosexual fornication or homosexual fornication. Whatever fornication it is. Fornication is illicit relationships with someone else and not being married. It doesn't matter who. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off these things. To put off these things, anger and wrath and malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. One of the the things that the Lord took from me immediately once I received Jesus was my filthy mouth. I had such a filthy mouth, someone would often tell me, do you eat with that mouth? It's so filthy. Do you eat with that mouth? I had a rotten mouth. And the Lord, as soon as he came into my heart and into my life, one of the first things that was noticeable, it was almost like the Holy Spirit gate was set on my heart and my mouth. There were other things that lingered. Maybe you can attest to something similar. There were things that Jesus took from your life and other things that lingered. Even to this day, there are things that you still struggle with. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Do you know that you're in good company? Because every one of us in this room are in the same situation. Not one of us is perfect. We confess and we believe in the promise that if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just, not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us. Do you want to be cleansed? Have you been cleansed? Are you continuing to be cleansed? The provision is there. Amen? Yeah, it is. In the place of a skull, this was called Calvary. Calvary. Calvaria is the Latin. It also uh, is translated in the Greek, uh, cranian, where we get our word cranium. But here's Golgotha in Jerusalem in 1900. This is a photo of what Golgotha is or was. And right there in the center of the screen, and you'll see the next one right here, you can see the likeness of a skull, the two eyes. And you can see that today. If you go to Israel with us next year, you'll be at this very place. And right to the left of this Golgotha is the garden tomb where Jesus was crucified. Or not where he was crucified, where he was buried. Where he was crucified was on the road. We'll look at that a little bit later. But notice, there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, Jesus in the center. And this word, a brand new word was invented because of the pain that somebody goes through on the cross. In fact, it's called excruciaticus or excruciatus, excruciatus. And it literally means out of the cross. It's a type of pain 
crucified. It's a very intense pain. They had to develop a new word for it because of how hideous it is and how torturous it is. In Isaiah chapter 53, again, I would encourage you to read the entire chapter in context, but notice in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, Surely Jesus, he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so we opened on his mouth. And he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off, literally, he was killed from the land of the living. For the transgression of what? Of my people, he was stricken. Amazing, some 700 years before Jesus was incarnate, this prophecy in Isaiah was written. Speaking of that very moment when Jesus would hang on the cross. It says in verse 19 back in our text, Now Pilate, he wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And it probably looks something like this. The top part is the Hebrew, and then the Latin, and then the Greek underneath. And why in three languages? Because those were the three languages of the day. And Rome wanted to make sure when somebody was crucified, when somebody was a malefactor and they were going to be crucified, they wouldn't do it in a, in a place where it was quiet and nobody saw it. No, they wouldn't do that. They would do it right out in front of everybody. If you notice the picture on the screen right now, there's a road right before Golgotha. This is a very well-traveled road going all the way back. All the roads around there are very old. Even the road that we take from Jericho going up to Jerusalem is an ancient road that they just paved over with asphalt. Same roads, the same road. And what they would do is off to the right side of the screen, somewhere over here, they believe, where everybody could see it as they would come into town, a spectacle to ever everyone to see. Behold the power and the authority of Rome. Don't cross us. If you got bad business, you're coming here with evil intentions, this could be you. And it would scare the daylights out of everybody. And they would certainly see the horror on the faces of those crucified and the pain emanating from that cross. They would do it so everybody could see it. It was something that everyone, they wanted everyone to see it. Jesus was on full display. Therefore, the chief priest, verse 21 of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. He wasn't going to play any more games with them. And then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. And now the tunic was without seam, woven from from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture... Now, they didn't do this that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture was already spoken by David a thousand years before Jesus was born. In Psalm 22, it was already spoken that this would happen. 
They weren't following a script. I remember talking to one gentleman. He said, look, right there, they were following the script. They did this that it might be fulfilled. No, they did it out of ignorance. They had no idea what they were doing. They just saw the robe and it was good. And they decided, you know what, let's not tear it. Let's just cast lots for it. Little did they know they were fulfilling prophecy at the same time. How accurate is the word of God? I want to encourage you tonight to put your trust and your faith in the word of God. There's nothing more true than the word of God. Nothing more true than the word of God. Not only the word of God incarnate, but the word of God that you hold in your laps. Do you believe that this book is real? Do you believe that this is inerrant? The translation may have some some issues from time to time, but the, 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 the scrolls, the original manuscripts, inspired, inerrant. Do you believe it? Because you're going to be challenged by that, Christian, if you haven't already. And those young people who are going through school, you're going to be challenged by this very fact. Are you going to cave and say, I don't think it is? You better find out. And believe me, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of books I got in my office that can attest to the veracity of the word of God. You must believe it. If you don't, you're going to be like a waving, you're going to be like a leaf in the wind because everyone's going to be challenging you. And people with great big names and great big degrees and a lot of initials after their name are going to have power over you and they're going to say to you, are you serious? You believe that nonsense? And you can stand up to him even as a young person and say, I believe it with all my heart and so should you. Don't let anybody take you away from the word of God. No one. I don't care who they are. Don't do it. I don't care how smart somebody is. I know what Christ has done in my life. Do you know what he's done in your life? Are you willing to stand on it and say, oh no, you can tell me all you want. It's not going to make mean anything to me because I know the man I was and I am no longer that man. He is dead and buried. There's a new man. And he dwells inside of me. Amen? Yeah, and be encouraged by that. Later on, in another gospel, later on, actually in the same time that Jesus was on the cross, you remember that he said on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which literally means in Aramaic, it means in in English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus wasn't uh, amazed that God was forsaking him. He knew that that was going to happen. That was part of it. But he never experienced it before, ever. And was it horrible? Yes, it was horrible. More so, I believe, than the crucifixion itself was being having God the Father, his Father, turn his back, because God cannot look upon sin, it tells us. And he turned his back on his son, turned his back while he bore the judgment of God on our, in our behalf, on our behalf. As Jesus hung on that cross, he was reciting Psalm 22. What does it say in Psalm 22? Written a thousand years before Jesus was born. In verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. In verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then in verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. Probably speaking of maybe not only the, 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 
the, the, the centurions, but maybe even demonic beings surrounding Jesus in the, in, the, in the spiritual realm. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. And you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Do you realize that crucifixion wasn't even invented at this point in time? It was invented much later by the Persians and then later mastered by the Romans. And David is sharing this a thousand years before Jesus was born. And now verse 25, back in our text, what does Jesus say? Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Do you realize this? Three Marys. (laughs) Three Marys. Somebody called their name, they would all respond. Hey, Mary. And then, hello, hello, hello. Three Marys. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, her sister, the wife of Cleopas. And then Mary Magdalene, of whom Jesus cast out seven demons. They were all there. And then verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, speaking of John, of course, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Jesus wasn't um, asking him to behold him. He was looking at John and he's saying, woman, behold your son. I'm passing from the scene now. I've, I've done my purpose on this earth. But as the eldest son, I want, John, I want you to take care of my mother. And he said to the other disciple, to the disciple, he says, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And now a vessel of, full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it up to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And you know this word. You've heard it so many times. It's, a, it's, a, it's an Aramaic word or a, or a Greek word, tetelestai, which means paid in full. It's a, it's, a, it's a commercial sort of phrase. When you pay, finally pay the mortgage on your house, you take your, your, your loan book and you pay off the last one and they give you a piece of paper. A loan is paid in full. That's really what it was. What was paid in full? The sin of man. The debt that was owed. And when Jesus said it is finished, in Matthew's gospel it said he cried out again with a loud voice. Can you imagine that voice? The very last thing he said with every ounce of energy and every breath, amount of breath in his lung, which wasn't that much because he was suffering from asphyxiation and everything he had, he screamed, it is finished. It is finished. The, pay, the price has been paid in full. And therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Fulfilling prophecy. Not one bone of his body should be broken. That was a Passover lamb. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And doctors who, who know this kind of thing, who are aware of these medical conditions, uh, Jesus, what this is, it's called, a, it's a fancy phrase, it's called pericardial eff- effusion. And basically it's when you die, the, there's a water that accumulates in a sack around the heart. And that confirms that you're dead. Otherwise, this wouldn't have happened. When he pierced him through the side, he hit that sack, and not only water came out, but blood came out as well, confirming that he was indeed dead. And of course he was dead. These guys were trained killers, these Roman centurions. They knew when somebody was dead. They've seen it thousands of times. And he... Verse 35, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows what he is telling, that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. Do you believe? Do you believe what happened on the cross? We're almost done here, but I want to encourage you. Do you believe it? For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not, not one of his bones should be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And notice after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a part of the Sanhedrin, he was a Pharisee, a very a wealthy man, being a disciple of Jesus, notice, But secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. And notice Nicodemus, we read about, we're going to read about him in chapter 3 in a few, probably in a month or so. We'll read about him. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight of these things. And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in, notice, strips of linen, strips of linen, not just one, but several strips of linen. And we'll talk more about that on Sunday morning. Why is that significant? We'll look at that. Strips of linen, and they would wrap the body, and then they would pack those things. They would wrap the body and then put the spices and the aloes and the myrrh, and then they'd wrap the body some more, and they would pack it full, and that would obviously preserve the body and keep it from smelling. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Because we know on the outskirts of the city where everybody could see it is where he was crucified. And Joseph of Arimathea had that little garden tomb that we visit when we go to Jerusalem. I've been in that tomb three times so far. And guess what? It's still empty. (laughs) It's still empty. You walk right in and then you look to your right and you see it where he laid. And it was for Joseph of Arimathea and his wife and child. There's three little spots there. But Jesus occupied the one. So they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day. So there they laid him. It was close by. And the tomb was nearby. And notice again, what does it say in Isaiah 53? And he made his grave with the wicked. Certainly he died with those men on the cross. But notice, but with the rich at his death... Joseph of Arimathea, to be buried in this tomb was a rich man's tomb. Not everybody had the the benefit of being buried in such a a, a glamorous kind of thing. 
So, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When, he, when you make his soul, notice, an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, that's you and I, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and he shall see the labor of his hand and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what he did for us. And folks, that's what that fancy word propitiation means when it says that God the Father was pleased to bruise him. He was satisfied. That's what propitiation means. It means satisfied. I'm satisfied what, what has happened. This exchange. I was pacified, God says. That's what that means. So how about you? I pray that all of you know Jesus, and we're, we're going to end here in this one last verse. Because I want to encourage you. You know, I look around the room, and I, I know most of you, have known most of you for many years. But there may be some of you who are watching from, you know, online. But what about you? These things, how does it affect you? There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man comes unto the Father except through me. Except through Jesus. No one else. What we read tonight was fantastic. Yes, it was horrible, but we, we, we looked at some of the, the most profound scriptures Written hundreds of years in advance, Jesus fulfilled them very specifically, very poignantly. And he did this for you and I. Not only for us, but for everyone. The whole world, he did this. So what about you? What about you? Now maybe you're a Christian and you're here, and praise the Lord for that. You know, you've been encouraged a little bit tonight and had been exhorted but if you have not given your heart to Christ, notice what Paul said to the Romans. He said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You believe it. And believing it is not just some kind of intellectual assent. It's not just kind of, oh, I believe it. You know, people do that. Do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. You know, then, then why are you still doing all these other things? Well, you know, nobody's perfect. Well, yeah, nobody's perfect, but why, why are you continuing in doing that? Well, God, God's okay with that, isn't he? No, no, he's not. Have you read his word? No, I don't really read the Bible. You don't read the Bible, and yet you say you believe in God. Well, if you believe in God, you'd better read the Bible. <laughs> if you believe in the Bible, if you believe in God, you'd better really believe it. Because when I, really, when I say I believe, it's more than just I believe. You, you get my point, right? Because if I really believe it, I'm going to believe everything that he is and everything that he said and everything that was said about him. And in doing so, it changes, ought to change my life. Has it changed your life? I believe for most of us that's, that's the truth. But if you're here tonight and you haven't given your heart to Jesus, it really is quite simple. He's done everything for you. All you have to do is believe what he has said. 
In fact, Jesus, people said, what, Lord, what, what must we do? What good work must we do? And Jesus said, this is the good work that you must do. Believe on the one whom God has sent. Who was him? Jesus. So believe in the Lord. And for those of you who have known Christ for some time, take those passages in Romans 6 and Colossians 3. Take those to heart. Examine, re-examine your life because you believe, because you already know these things. Don't walk away. Tonight, read them over again and let them challenge you again. Because I fear in, in, in the church, we, we, we get so familiar with things that we, that we forget. We stop really... You know, we stop really pressing in. Do you know what I mean by that? I've been in that place where I've just, I've kind of been kind of on cruise control. Just kind of cruising. I'm not really advancing, but can I tell you that if you're not advancing, you're sliding back. There's really no middle ground. We can't just stay in neutral. One little puff of wind can send your car down the street when you're in neutral. If you don't put on the brakes, you're going back and you're going back and it's going to get ugly. Advance. Advance. Let's do that together, will you? Seriously, let's do that together as a, as a church. Really say, Lord, examine me again. Examine my heart again. Let me read that again. Let me crucify those things that I've been playing with that nobody knows about my wife doesn't know about this. My husband doesn't know about this. And, you know, I got this thing on the side or I've been doing this or doing that and I'm taking money from the company and the boss doesn't know. Hey, listen, if you're doing any of those things, you really need to examine things again. Get things right. Get things right. Confess them and be restored to Christ. It's, that, it's serious business, isn't it? Why? Because he loves you and he wants the very best for you. And can I tell you, that one of the best things you can do as a Christian is to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and strength, and body and mind. Notice I said body and mind. Love him with all these things. Give him authority over your thoughts, over the things that you listen to, the things that you watch, the things that you read. And if it doesn't add up, then get rid of it. And I can be a hypocrite when it comes to that. Is anybody a hypocrite here tonight? Raise your hand if you are. Only only two people, me and... (laughs) We're all that way, aren't we? At at some point, we're all hypocrites. So we can't really point a finger at each other, right? Let's just admit that we're hypocrites. (laughs) But let's do something about it. Let's be less of a hypocrite tomorrow, right? Let's honor our king with our lives, with the things that we say, the things that we do. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we just thank you for this time together. And uh, Lord, we, uh, as we worship with this last song, Father, we pray that our hearts would just be um, encouraged and strengthened. And Lord, that you would do that work in us, Lord. You have died to set us free. And Lord, you want us to bear much fruit, Lord. So do that work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.